You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We'll start now to look at the great founder of modern philosophy, and that is the philosophy of René Descartes. Although influenced by Galileo, Machiavelli, Bacon, there is this unique synthesis and unique turn that Descartes makes that I think rightly grants him the title of founder and father of modern philosophy. I suppose on the positive side here, I could read to you this short quote of Jacques Maritain in his book on the dream of Descartes. He says, from beneath the stern and mighty brow of Descartes shine two living truths, two precious truths, one that is old, one that is new. The new one is the young truth of physico-mathematical science of Galileo. The former, the ancient truth, is the Socratic and Christian precept, go back into thyself and into the spiritual element which is within thee. Perceived more or less confusedly, these truths fascinated and deceived the 17th century. So the two truths are the truths of the new science and that mechanistic mathematical model of nature. And this new self-awareness, this new sense of one's own power and one's own place as an individual in the world. Now to get the sketch of an overview of Descartes' philosophy, I would like to go over briefly, I think, six key points of the basics of Descartes' philosophy. And then we'll start to fill them in by looking at some of the text. I hope point you to the text so that you can read what Descartes actually says. The first one I've already mentioned, and that is the new goal. This is a very significant thing, the new goal of philosophy as mastery of nature does overturn that speculative goal, the goal of wisdom and the repose in wisdom and contemplation that we find virtually encircling ancients and medievals alike, to the point where I believe it's Gelson and his history of the times says really what's ending here is not scholasticism, but Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy, at least in its Platonic and Aristotelian forms. So the new goal is mastery of nature. There's a new criteria for philosophy. These criteria are certitude and utility. Now the utility one we see coming from the goal, but certitude, this quest for certitude, is something we need to look at closely where it comes from and how it's employed. We do know historically it grows out of the extreme skepticism that marked the age. It grew out of that collapse of authority due to the religious wars and the infighting among theologians and then the political opportunism which led to the religious wars. But there's more to it than just an attempt to contradict skepticism. We know Augustine had his arguments against the skeptics, actually employing a phrase something like Descartes' cogito ergo sum. Descartes, I'm not sure if he knew about Augustine's phrase, see, follow, or sum, if I am deceived, then I am. But of course, Augustine uses that in an entirely different manner. So the second thing, the criteria of certitude, the clear and distinct idea comes to dominate modern philosophy. See, whereas the ancients were certainly not given over to wallowing in vagueness or imprecision, 
there was a recognition of various degrees, various limits of precision according to each science. And of course, all of science the ancients understood and philosophy rests upon a dialectical assent to philosophical notions. So not only in the origin is there this dialectical ascent and probability leading up to the truth of a philosophic judgment, then on the other side, the ancients saw the limits of the human concept and judgment. That is the ever-present factor of mystery and wonder leading of course, Socrates to say philosophy begins and ends in wonder. Pieper explains this well. There's a certain inexhaustibility of being that prevents any ancient account of philosophy to be systematic and closed. Descartes wants certitude, and that will be something that we will trace through all of the moderns through Kant. A third action or third cry feature of modern philosophy we find in Descartes related to this new criteria is a new method. The new method is outlined in the discourse on method and used in the meditations. But its most striking feature is what's called radical doubt or some have called it hyperbolic doubt because the doubt is so extreme and at times absurd. If you've heard anything about Descartes, you may know he even worries about an evil genius. He claims he doesn't know if he's awake or if he's asleep. There's this hyper-skepticism which is used to clear the ground of any notions except that clear and distinct idea. So part of the new method is to have a rational plan according to mathematical method. Etienne Gilson calls it the mathematicism of Cartesian philosophy. And of course, Maritain points this out also. It takes the intelligibility of mathematics and imposes that on all human science and all philosophy. The fourth characteristic of modern philosophy will be this turning to new science for its basic model of nature, and that is the mechanistic model, which leaves as one of the trailing problems of modern philosophy a radical dualism, a split in the human being between body and mind, or body and soul. Actually, we'll see the term soul is dispensed with, and it becomes an issue of body-mind or body and consciousness. Fifth we'll see in Descartes a certain ambiguity about that end. That is, there is this emphasis upon efficiency, this emphasis upon technical proficiency and power, but not as much time talked about the goal, not much time examining the good or the end. And we'll see how that good or end is consistently filled in by the philosophers, and that is with self-assertion or self-preservation or peace. This would be a sixth element that I think will characterize modern philosophy, is this lowering the goal of human hope and striving. Lowering the goal to peace or profit or pleasure. There is a consistent hedonism which runs through modern philosophy originating in Kant. So those are some of the elements we're going to outline now in detail to Descartes' popular account of his own discoveries called the Discourse on Method. In the Discourse on Method, Descartes reviews his own education and finds it wanting and believes that the genius of his method will be that anyone who follows it can really instruct themselves or come to know the fundamental truths on their own, verify it on their own. So what is the criticism? Well, it's interesting. He begins with 
a strange regret, a regret that he ever was a child. I think this is one of the most revealing passages in an autobiography. He regrets he was ever a child because as a child he imbibed opinions and notions from his parents and his nannies and his teachers which now he doesn't know which ones are accurate and which ones are not. And of course this will be part of his method is to sweep clean all ideas that he's inherited or has come from without. It's radically anti-traditional, the approach that he will take. But let's look at it. Here's in part one of the discourse. He said, I have been nourished on letters since my childhood and since I was given to believe that by their means a clear and certain knowledge could be obtained of all that is useful in life, I had an extreme desire to reason or think. Now that's already an ingenious move that he's made to say he's learned that the goal of education is to find what's useful and we do it through clear and certain knowledge. Now as he goes down the list of things he has studied, he thinks about the study of language, the study of fables, histories, great books, poetry, mathematics, ethics, theology, philosophy, law, medicine, science. He goes through each one of these and we could make a little chart to look at how they stack up against what is useful or certain. And he finds that none of them bring those together. Some things he finds just totally uncertain and totally useless like poetry. That won't last for long. Mathematics he finds certain and loves the certitude of mathematical demonstration but is amazed that no one has put it to greater use. He thinks that the great books and philosophy just kick up so many conflicting opinions that everything comes into doubt. It's interesting the passage he says about philosophy in here may be a criticism of philosophy of the time, but basically it is that philosophy gives you the ability to talk about anything but all the philosophers are contradicting each other. So he doesn't find much help among the philosophers. Theology, he says in a mock humility that it's too high. Its truths are too sublime and too profound. And he says, I aspired as much as anyone to reach heaven, but I realized you don't need theology to get to heaven, which is a true point. But in Descartes' rhetoric, he will use that as an excuse to say theology doesn't belong in the list of rational learning. I think it will be three centuries later when it takes a John Henry Newman to refute the fallacy of that exclusion of theology. But at this point it is excluded because he says it's too high. Again, recall Aristotle says theology is the goal of learning and he admits it's too high for mere mortals. But he says the little bit we can study here and learn outweighs all the rest. Or there's the platonic image of the coming out of the cave and the brightness of the sun. Or I think it's Aristotle's image that we're like bats flying around the sun or the light is so strong. The idea here is the ancients knew that theology had its challenge to the human mind, but that it remained the goal of human inquiry. We'll see in Descartes' new accounting of the sciences, metaphysics will be put at the root. He says you start with metaphysics, study it for a couple days or weeks, then get on to science. Science is the trunk of the tree and the fruit will be medicine and engineering. So you see this fundamental inversion in modern philosophy, that practical utility combined with certitude as the two pinchers that really make a new way for philosophy and just knock down the ancient wisdom. Now, as Descartes then says, most of my education then was either useless or not certain. He sees the new possibilities, taking mathematics out 
and combining it then with science and medicine. And that's what he thinks he has to set the new foundation for. Now in part two of the Discourse on Method, he leads into some reflections upon what it is to found a city. What is it to be a builder? What is it to set up a new thing? All the while saying, I'm not a reformer. I'm just doing this for myself. There's a great bit of irony here. It's obviously setting up a new system. Now what's interesting, in his reflection upon order, he has us consider a house, a city, a state. He goes from smaller to a larger work or art of human beings and makes the claim that there is more perfection found in a work done by one man according to a rational system than there is in something that's grown up over time. There is a uniformity. There is an efficiency which comes from allowing a single founding moment from the ground up, if you will. Think in your imagination, say, the difference between an ancient European city and Washington, D.C., which is supposedly laid out according to a rational plan under the influence of Descartes, Lafont, who designed it, was going to use a rational method. Now again, there's something to be said for each, but there's a charm about the ancient village or city where not everything is uniform, not everything is laid out so you know just where everything is, but having the nooks and crannies, different things for different purposes, there's a charm to that, even a beauty to that, which Descartes doesn't even seem to acknowledge. Now one has to admit there is something about rational planning which has its merits too. But as we'll see, he consistently goes to the point of rational planning with a near indifference to the end or purpose. As a matter of fact, when he gets up to the level of a city, he says he admires Sparta because Sparta had one lawgiver and they were efficient warriors. Now I think that shows the ambiguity of the end or goal of modern philosophy. Part of it is just this acquisition and maintaining of power and the need for uniform rational plan. So to wrap this up, let me just say Descartes at the end of this meditation on perfection in which he praises Sparta and the one rational designer outlines his little sketch of method which we'll see now elaborated on in the meditation which we'll get to here in a minute. But here are the four rules. Let's just look at them in part two of the Discourse on Method and let it sink in. Here's his first rule of method. To accept nothing as true, which I did not clearly recognize to be so. That is to say, carefully to avoid precipitation and prejudice in judgments and to accept in them nothing more than what was presented to my mind so clearly and distinctly that I would have no occasion to doubt it. Now that just has to be repeated numerous times and let it sink in. That's the radical doubt. To accept nothing but what is clearly and distinctly in your mind. In another passage he'll say, I'll throw everything out and only bring it back if it will conform to the standard of mathematical certitude. It's just amazing. He must know this is hyperbolic, the absurdity of that, which the moderns, especially Hume, will relish the absurdity of. To make everything as certain as mathematics, I wouldn't walk into this room. I wouldn't get up in the morning. How could I tell my wife I loved her if everything had to conform to the standard of mathematical certitude. But that's what he's laying out as his number one principle. This is the revolution, that statement right there. See, nothing will come back unless it's rationally provable by mathematical means. I mean, he's already told us poetry, theology, ethics, you name it. They're all going to go by the wayside 
because they won't measure up to that standard. Now, as next two methods, principles of methods are analysis and synthesis, to divide each of the difficulties up to get to the simple parts. Again, this sounds innocent and like just fairly good reasoning, but it's a new logic, which must have the hypothesis of what he'll later call simple natures. There's something reductive about this. To understand something, you have to reduce it to those clear and distinct elements, which will be, again, what's measurable or what's quantifiable or something that I can make a simple. His third principle of method is to carry on his reflections in due order, commencing with objects that were most simple and building up by degrees to knowledge of the more complex. So this is the reverse side. There's a synthetic movement here to bring together and reconstruct, see, reality. That's really what this method is getting at. That will reconstruct in our minds the reality out there according to the simple natures or plans that I can scientifically reconstruct the world in my mind. And then his fourth one is to enumerate and cover what he's done. So this is the opening of the great new revolution. I'll just briefly say in part three, Descartes mentions the difficulty of ethics in light of this new standard. He acknowledges the problem. So he says, I'll have a provisional morality, which is to go along with the morals of my country. Again, an implicit relativism here, which is inevitable if the only level of intelligibility is mathematics, ethics, and real practical knowledge does not have the certitude of mathematics. Aristotle says any gentleman would know that. Descartes here shows that he's not educated in the way that Aristotle thinks would be true wisdom. Further, he will say he will live by this stoic maxim to stay what was within my power. Now, again, this is another great irony. The moderns are influenced by the Stoics because the Stoics have that notion of human sufficiency, a self-aware notion of virtue. The flaw of the Stoics, of course, is that they say, nature is not within our power. One must acquiesce in events. Descartes' whole trick here will be to say, look, the Stoics have it right. Don't worry yourself with what's not within your power. But the big question is, what is within our power? And can we extend the range of our power? So it's Stoic in one sense, but in another sense, it's a new thing. It's the modern thing. That is, interest in redesigning nature according to human power. Again, for what end, for what purpose, it's not always that clear. At times, it just seems to be mastery for mastery's sake. At other times, certainly in the popularized form, it is mastery for the sake of comfortable self-preservation. That's something that Thomas Hobbes will bring out into his own. Now, Descartes does give a brief sketch of the new science of nature, looking at nature as a machine and outlines the mechanisms of nature. But I think we will proceed on now to go about it in another form, and that is to open up the meditation. So now we will turn to Descartes' great work, which is the meditation. Meditations on first philosophy. See, it sounds like something his Jesuit mentors will say is just part of the philosophic tradition. It's first philosophy. It's even meditation. But you'll see it's a meditation on first philosophy, which takes off in this radical new direction. The meditation is actually a series of six meditations. We won't have time to delve into them all, but I would like to outline some of the key features of the opening meditations and then the final meditation. The first meditation is subtitled as follows. 
of things which may be brought within the sphere of the doubtful. And he opens up with recounting a story of a time he was sitting by himself thinking about what's certain. And let me just read some of it to you. He says, It is now some years since I detected how many were the false beliefs that I had held from my earliest youth as true, and how doubtful was everything I had constructed on this basis. And from that time I was convinced that I must once and for all seriously undertake to rid myself of all the opinions which I had formerly accepted and commence to build anew from the foundation if I wanted a firm and permanent structure in the science. Now again, one just has to think about that in light of the Socratic method, Aristotelian method in philosophy. All philosophy struggles against opinion. All philosophy is an examination of opinion. But the ancient method saw that the problem with opinion is not that it's totally doubtful, but that it's partial, it's distorted, it's vague. And therefore, you need a dialectical process of sharpening up what comes through common opinion, of comparing it with what is, of getting beyond just the mere appearance to see how the appearances are in tension with what is. But you can't, in the ancient method, just abandon appearance, abandon opinion, and think you can just jump right into truth or being by living in your own mind. It took this social discourse, this friendly conversation, this dialectical art by which you could develop the habit of coming to see deeper coming to see a more comprehensive vision of things, acquiring definitions, reasoning out. Again, Descartes says, I will once and for all get rid of opinions and just start with certitude to build this structure. Now, to do that, he's going to use this method, which is to consider everything as false unless it's absolutely certain. See, again, think about that. Here's Descartes' formula. I will regard even what's probable as false unless it's absolutely certain. It's hyperbolic doubt. There's a misfit between this possibility of being in error and saying I'll treat it as total error. You know, it's probably the case that the floor I'm standing on is solid. I'm on the second floor of the law building at Notre Dame. I don't know with mathematical certitude that it's safe. Someone probably could figure that out. The engineers have. The point is, I don't know that. So if I'm going to act on the basis of pure idea, certitude and distinctness, and treat as probable what is merely false, I should run for the exit right now. But I don't and won't, because I know there's this range of certitude. Okay, so I think, why is he doing this? I think it is in order to get to a new foundation. See, this radical doubt, there's going to be something behind it. It's going to be the way that he discovers his own true power and his own true self by, now pardon the philosopher's word here, but by alienating the whole world. That is, making the whole world other than himself to see his own position as the thinking self. That's really what happens in this opening of modern philosophy, is the loss of the world, which one could say is never recovered. Now, Maritain will say it's this idealism at the heart of modern philosophy, which we need the realist philosophy of Aristotle and Aquinas to challenge these premises. But it is this loss of the world, the loss of being, and this orientation to self and the contents of one's own mind that is where Descartes is going with this. So to step briefly through Meditation 1, it's got to be read to be appreciated. But he goes through a number of things that can be doubted. 
Let me just take you through the steps, and even though it starts to sound wild, just hold on for the ride and we'll see where it's going. He starts with the easy spot, the trick of the ancient skeptics, which is the senses often mislead us. The senses are naive. The senses can be easily doubted, just stock phrases of optical illusions that a straight stick in water appears bent. Or a building from a distance can look small or round or square or whatever you want to take. There's always some possibility or, you know, one of the favorites now in the modern age is that phrase on our side view mirror. Things are not as close as they appear or whatever that phrase is. The notion is, though, that we can adjust ourselves without radical doubt to know that the senses may deceive us. But because the senses do deceive us, he will trust them not at all. Again, here is the hyperbolic doubt. It sometimes proved to me these senses are deceptive, and it's wiser not to trust entirely to anything by which we have once been deceived. So we'll throw the senses out and say, that's not good enough. But then he says, there's another level of doubt. And that is, I could doubt the organ. I could doubt that my very powers of perception are accurately reporting things. He says here, how could I deny that I am sitting here in a dressing gown, this paper in my hand? But, he says, I know there are certain persons devoid of sense who have violent vapors of black bile, who think they are kings when they are poor, or clothed in purple when they are really without covering, or think they are pumpkins or made of glass. In other words, they're mad. How do I know I'm not mad? Again, why does he say this? I think it is to bring into question the doubt and trust in the organs of perception. Or to put it another way, even what we call accurate perception could in some way just be an appearance to me of something that I don't know. Actually, that's going to be the final position of modern philosophy, that all I know is how things appear to me. So it's not a silly position that we're all in a dream or could be dreaming. But it brings up the possibility that the very organs of perception I have just report how I am affected, but it doesn't tell me anything about reality or being. So that's why he gets to his last bit of wrapping up this phase of doubt. He says, how do I know that I'm not dreaming and that I could be asleep and thinking that I'm sitting up thinking these thoughts. Again, it's an absurd doubt to everyday consciousness, which Pascal and others will keep reminding people. But I think there's a reason Descartes does this. In a dream, you have just what appears to be. And that's, I think, what he's getting at, that maybe our representations or appearances are only how we are affected by the world. He actually gives another analogy. He says, just as a painting is made up of color, so too it may be that the things of our experience are made up of something more radical. I mean, that's going to be the thesis and one of the amazing things about modern science and one of the problems. It's what's called its manifest image, how it appears to us, but what it really is. It's that kind of language that these modern philosophers are trying to come to terms with. I mean, just simply it'd be something like this. What is color really? And if a scientist said it's really just a certain length of a wave light, then you see the word blue or red could just disappear from our vocabulary. And that is one of the struggles of modern philosophy, what they call secondary qualities, blue, heat, various tactile sensations, 
are nothing but how we are affected. Now again, to get the plausibility of Cartesian doubt, not that we want to stay there, it would go something like this. If someone cuts you with a knife, you would say the pain is not in the knife, the pain is caused by the knife. Descartes takes the next step and says, well, color is caused by some other thing. So how do I know what the thing really is? I don't. So what can I find that's absolutely certain? Now, one could call this the similarity thesis, see, that things are as they appear. And he raises this possibility that the simple natures, the real things, that'll be body in motion, extension, is the real thing and the secondary qualities are just how they appear to us. So we're getting now down to the level of pure mathematics or extension. Now why doesn't he stop there and say, well, that's for real? He then does start to raise the possibility that maybe God is deceiving us. Or he raises this possibility. Let me read it to you. He says, I've had this notion of an all-powerful God who created me as I am. But how do I know he has not brought it to pass that there is no earth, no heaven, no extended body, no magnitude, no place? And yet they seem to me to exist as I see them. But I know that God is good, so he wouldn't contradict this. Well, you see, he will then shift grounds and get into this problem that he may be being deceived about all of it. And so how is he going to get out of this? He says at the end of Meditation 1 that I feel like a captive who in sleep enjoys an imaginary liberty. When he begins to suspect his liberty is but a dream, he fears to awake and conspires with these agreeable illusions that the deception may be prolonged. I fall back into my former opinions. I dread awakening from this slumber. Now that goes over to meditation two, where he says, my mind is filled with so many doubts I can't forget them, but I don't know how to resolve them. Well, this is disturbing. You know, once you let yourself slip into this idealist position, which is maybe the world we can imagine is gone, or to have that gap between what appears and what is. And he says, now, here's another image he gives. I feel like I'm in very deep water. He is in deep water. And I'm so disconcerted that I can neither make certain where to set my feet on the bottom, nor can I swim. I'll make an effort and find this new path by setting aside all that in the least is doubtful. I will doubt to look for what is certain. Archimedes had his point by which he could move the globe out of its place. What could be? this absolute certitude. Now we come to the heart of Cartesian and modern philosophy. And I'm sure you've heard this, but now we've worked up to it and maybe can earn it. And that is the cogito. He says, one thing is certain, and that is that I exist. Cogito ergo sum, even if I am deceived, even if there is an evil genius, who's put the electrodes in my brain to make me think I'm really in a lecture room in the law school when I'm at home sleeping. Even if that's the case, I know that I am. And every time I say it, I know that it's true. So this is the rock bottom. This is the place, he thinks, the swimmer who's in deep water, the rock where he can put his feet. I think, therefore, I am. I don't know if there's anything else out there. I don't know what it is, but I do know that I am. Now again, this is a strange beginning of philosophy, to begin with the certitude of oneself. We're still sort of in a pickle, which is the appearances suggest there is something more than myself. So how can I get the world back?
Well, actually, before doing that, I should say he starts to develop the other great thesis of modern philosophy, and that is the dualism, that the world is divided into thinking things and extended things, into geometrical figures and to thinking selves or floating consciousness. And he makes this rigorous division into the two and identifies himself with the thinking thing. Now again, part of the strangeness of this method compared to the ancients is that Descartes thinks that the order of knowing is the same of the order of being, or that somehow it matches perfectly. If I know myself first, then there is something prior, something sufficient about knowing. On the other hand, we could say Descartes is somewhat neutral about the ultimate metaphysics of his position. And as you'll see at the very end, I think we could say it doesn't really matter ultimately if the world is so neatly divided as long as it works, as long as it allows us to understand and manipulate nature according to that opening goal that we can master nature. So to make the long story short here, the way Descartes is able to get the world back is through a proof that God exists. It's an ancient variation of an ontological argument. That is, he starts with the idea of God as a perfect or infinite being and deduces that such a being must be because he couldn't have produced that idea because he's imperfect and limited. Subsequent philosophers have shown what a poor argument it is. Part of the great debate over interpreting Descartes is how serious he is in this argument. I don't think we really have the time to try to account for the sincerity of the argument. It's a very long extended proof, but as I said, the essence of it is it begins with an idea in his mind of perfection and concludes that he can't account for that idea from his own inner resources, from his own mind or the appearances of things, and so he says it must come from God. Let's grant him that for the sake of argument, just to continue the story. He goes on then to say that because God exists, God's truthful. God would not allow me to live in this delusion. And so there must be a world out there that somehow corresponds to what appears to me. Now again, all those doubts are still there. That's one reason I think the proof does seem a bit ad hoc. If he says God is truthful, by the way, he never repeats the word that God is good. This is what some of the people who doubt Descartes' sincerity point out, that most of the modern arguments for God do not list goodness as one of the attributes. They'll list power. They may list truthfulness. But to my knowledge, none of the great proofs for God's existence in Descartes, Spinoza, Locke mention his goodness. Goodness is an essential attribute here to get back the world. But if the world is brought back, we are still left with this dualism that I exist as a thinking thing, the world out there, I suppose, to be bodies in motion following geometric design consistent with Galileo and then later Newton. Here, let's get to the final problem of Descartes' philosophy through this fast tour we've had. We've got to skip over to Meditation 6, where he brings it all together. In Meditation 6, we are left with this problem of dualism. I am a thinking thing. Body is extended. It's curious, of course, that I find myself with a body, but I don't understand what it is or it's somehow different from my very essence. That's the radical dualism. 
Descartes works out a solution that goes something as follows. I will have a little chart for you to look at to understand this. But basically, he resolves the dualism in a non-metaphysical way, by which I mean to say he admits he can't solve the problem of how a thinking thing is attached to a body. He talks about a gland that may go between, but that's really an ad hoc solution. One interpretation here of Meditation 6 is, in a way, he doesn't care about the being of things. His philosophy is a practical one. He's already told us that. It's certain because it's useful. That's the interpretation I'll be taking of Descartes. The why hyperbolic doubt and certitude? Where does that demand come from? Not from science itself, for the whole of reality. That wasn't Galileo. That won't be Newton. That every single thing must meet the standard of mathematical certitude and scientific proof. I think it comes from that Machiavellian element, which is we want to master nature. So only if it's certain can we master it. So here's what happens. Descartes has to admit we have two fundamental perspectives. I've learned this, and I'll do my best to explain it from Richard Kennington, who has an article on the teaching of nature and Descartes. It goes something like this. On the one hand, we have the natural attitude. He says, nature teaches me that when I feel pain, something's wrong, and I've got to do something. That's the natural attitude. See, the natural attitude, as I told you, doesn't have that radical doubt. If a dog's barking at me and snarling, I run. If I put my hand in the fire and it's painful, I don't meditate on whether it exists or not. Locke will later poke fun at Descartes, saying, I stick my hand in the fire and I pull it out. Of course it exists. Of course, Locke doesn't get the subtlety. I think that's Descartes' view, too, that, yeah, there are practical reasons to treat the world as if it were an external thing impinging on me, and primarily to see the importance of pleasure and pain, and to know then that the human being is a composite of body and soul. The problem is it's theoretically misleading. It's theoretically misleading because it operates on that similarity thesis and even the existence thesis. But if we see the natural attitude has its role to play, what role does it play? It gives us purpose. Pleasure and pain, benefit and harm, seeking what is agreeable, avoiding what's disagreeable, locks in that final purpose of scientific efficiency. But it must be corrected theoretically. So here's the natural attitude. We correct it theoretically in terms of mathematical physics, and we get the scientific perspective. Here's the scientific perspective. Man is a machine. Nature is a machine. It's extension only. It's just sheer body. It's just matter in motion. It's atoms. It's chemicals. It's, you know, add on to what modern science can tell us. Descartes anticipates this. The scientific perspective doesn't need soul. The scientific perspective doesn't need mind. The scientific perspective just sees man as a machine. He says it gives us, though, the true picture. It gives us the reality, the true picture, that is, mathematically clear and distinct ideas. There are only quantities, or what he'll call primary qualities, extension, motion, the elements of Galilean and Newtonian physics. Secondary qualities are subjective. That's the scientific view. It's all an appearance. See, that's why he has that wacky thing about the madman. In a way, that's what science tells us, that we're all madmen in a way. It's all just an appearance caused by we're not exactly sure. Now, do you see the downside, though, of the scientific perspective? Its downside is it's neutral. An amazing passage in Meditation 6, Descartes says, according to strict science, health and sickness are the same. Now you say, what? But no, think about it. He says, sickness 
operates by its own laws of physics. I mean, it's just following certain mechanical laws. But we judge that health is better than sickness. But strictly speaking, science is neutral. It's just an account of the machine. There's no good or evil. Things just are and occur by necessity. See, that's the notion of mechanism. So how are these two brought together? There you'll see on the chart that natural attitude must be corrected by science because the natural attitude is naive about what is. But the scientific perspective lacks purpose. It's neutral. So the loop goes back around to the natural attitude. And see, I must mention the hedonism, the emphasis on pleasure and pain as the primary part of the mechanism of human desire. And so they're held in this uneasy tension by philosophy. Philosophy, the self-conscious mind, certain of itself, with a strong resolve. What is the strong resolve? It is the strong resolve, this is going to rhyme some, the resolve to dissolve the world the resolve to get rid of opinions, the resolve not to be misled by authorities and nannies and mothers and fathers and priests, but to resolve to think for myself. The secret truth even is the resolve to see being is just relative to me. It's my appearance. So that's the end note of Cartesian philosophy. It is using certitude, in a hyperbolic way to undermine the natural attitude and the natural perspective, to destroy inherited opinion and tradition, to start anew, but realizing it's not completely self-sufficient, he must draw back upon the natural attitude to see the benefit. Health, as he mentioned, as one of the great ones, pleasure and pain. So where we will go next is to just make a quick review about some of the problems of Cartesian philosophy. And look at this exuberant drawing out of some of the premises in the philosophy of Spinoza. And then turning over to another Frenchman, Pascal, and see how the very dynamic set up by Cartesian philosophy must be called off to recognize its insanity and absurdity and its limits and to see the need, at least with Pascal, to open the way back to faith. The problem we'll see, of course, is Pascal doesn't have the philosophic resources to do it, but as a prophet, crying out in the wilderness of the new modern philosophy, I think Pascal is a very important thinker. So that will do our job on Descartes. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.